Hi, welcome to Navigating the Pandemic, Past, Present, and Future, the show that explores the novel coronavirus and how it impacts our daily lives. I'm your host, Kat, a current undergraduate at Emory University studying anthropology and global health. Today's show focuses on media, conspiracy theories, and the public health impact of exposure to framed messages about the origins of COVID-19. I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Toby Bolson, an associate professor of American politics and political science at Georgia State University. Professor Bolson's research focuses on the study of political communication, public opinion, political behavior, experimental methods, and U.S. energy and climate policy. Today on the show, he'll discuss the role that COVID-19 conspiracy theories play in influencing public health messaging and pandemic mitigation, particularly how these theories contribute to the spread of misinformation and steps that can be taken to address damaging conspiracy rhetoric. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Dr. Bolson. Well, thank you for having me, Catherine. I appreciate it. And uh, I just want to say before I get started, I want to thank uh, or credit my collaborators, Risa Palm, Dr. Risa Palm and Justin Kingsland, who I work with on the project that I'll be talking about today. Great. Thanks so much for that. So to begin, will you provide a brief introduction of the recently published research article that you worked on with Dr. Palm and Dr. Kingsland, Framing the Origins of COVID-19? And can you discuss your hypothesis, methodology, and findings? Well, yes, I'd be happy to talk about the project and the study's design. And so the origins of the study were really in April and May of this year. So not, not long after kind of everything kind of crashed in the world. And so, as we know, in, in all of the media coverage that ensued since, there was this sort of explosion of different kinds of conspiracy rhetoric and misinformation that just flourished in the aftermath of, of the virus's outbreak. And so, you know, amidst all of these different, you know, conspiracy theories, we decided to sort of choose a particular set to focus on for the study. And in particular, we focused on narratives that attacked, you know, the origin of the virus and, and, and where this started and what the nature of the origins of the virus were. And we pre-tested several different ones and we settled on a particular and a specific conspiracy theory related to how this virus you know, what caused the outbreak of this virus. And in particular, you know, talking about the conspiracy that focused on uh, claiming that this virus was human engineered in a research laboratory in Wuhan, China, and then either accidentally or deliberately leaked uh, and then covered up by the Chinese government in its aftermath. And so that's conspiracy theory. You know, the alternative is sort of the scientific consensus on the the origins of the virus, which were really focused around um, genetic sequencing and the idea that this virus originated in bats and then was transmitted through natural processes, human contact, possibly from people who are handling infected animals in a marketplace in Wuhan. So that's the best of our scientific knowledge at the time the study was conducted again in April, May. The first week in May is actually when we fielded this survey of over a thousand individuals that we recruited from Amazon Mechanical Turk for the study. And so to be clear, this wasn't a representative sample of the U.S. population. It was a convenient sample, a diverse convenient sample, you know, diverse in terms of the partisan composition of the sample uh, and diverse in terms of other individual level characteristics, but not a representative sample of the U.S. population. 
to preempt questions people may be asking, you know, we have to be a bit cautious of talking about how different subpopulations responded to the messages that I'll talk about, because we are dealing with a, with a particular group of, of respondents who um, what we really wanted to do was conduct a randomized experiment that was embedded in the survey. And that background information, I think, is important because it helps you understand what kind of study we did, what the hypotheses were for our study, what kinds of treatments we designed, and then what we found. At that point, I'll just kind of go in to talk about what was on the survey and then what we randomly exposed to different respondents in the survey, if that sounds okay, and then how those treatments in this experiment embedded within the survey influenced their attitudes, their willingness to engage in particular behaviors. Yeah, that would be great. Okay, super. Well, this survey, again, had about a thousand people. We randomly assigned it all respondents in the survey to one of four conditions, okay? And so one of the groups of, you know, there were about 270 plus respondents then in each of the four arms of the survey. And in the end, we checked to make sure that randomization was successful and our treatment and control groups were similar in all of these characteristics, such as partisanship and others. So we were able to sort of test specific hypotheses about the causal effect of exposure to the different information that we created on people's attitudes on the survey. And so one group was a control group that didn't receive any information at all. And they simply answered first their beliefs about what was the origin of the virus. Was this, were its origins uh, zoonotic? Were they, was this virus something that jumped naturally from animals to humans? Or alternatively, do they believe its origins were, were, were that it was human engineered in some capacity, whether that was, um, you know, accidentally or deliberately leaked? Um, and so that was one of our survey questions that we asked respondents. We also asked respondents additional questions such as, should China be held financially responsible for the outbreak? Should governments or individuals be able to file lawsuits against China for releasing additional information about uh, that they might have about what was responsible for the outbreak? We asked questions about individuals' support for biomedical research to combat zoonotic coronaviruses in the U.S. and, and higher or lower levels of funding. And finally, we asked people on the survey how willing they are to engage in a variety of pro-social health behaviors to help mitigate the spread of the virus such as the six feet of maintaining six feet of social of distance in, in social settings or public spaces, wearing masks, et cetera. And so what our predictions were then, and to talk particularly, so some people just answered those survey questions to give us a baseline le level of people's beliefs on these subjects before we expose them to any information randomly. And so the other arms of our study and the other conditions, we exposed some people to, we asked them to read particular versions of news articles that we created that were based upon real actual news articles that were being reported at the time we developed the study. One version focused on the natural origins and natural transmission. Another version focused on this particular conspiracy narrative that I talked about, where it was human engineered by the Chinese government. The, the last arm of the condition, uh, the last treatment that we exposed people to randomly of the four was a combination, an article where they read sort of both versions, the scientific argument, others have argued this sort of conspiracy narrative. And then we, at the end, after they were exposed to those, uh, one version of those news articles or the competitive version, they then answered our survey questions. And we were able to then test predictions about how exposure to this different information shifted not only individuals' beliefs about the origins of this virus, but how by shifting those beliefs, it also had downstream effects on their 
desire to, their willingness to want to see China held financially responsible through lawsuits. Uh, also, people's willingness to want to spend money when they were exposed to conspiracy narrative, getting into the findings already. But we found some interesting effects here that when they were exposed to these conspiracy narratives, uh, they became less likely to want to fund biomedical research, as opposed to when they'd been exposed to a scientific article about the zoonotic origins of this, they became more willing to want to see spending for biomedical research. Finally, you know, we also looked at a research question. We had predictions about how exposure to either one-sided versions of the article or the competitive version would influence people's attitudes on each of these outcomes that I'm talking about. But we didn't have a hypothesis per se about pro-social behaviors. There is this literature that suggests that when people are exposed to conspiracy narratives or conspiracy arguments, they become less likely to engage in pro-social behaviors. This is really recent literature. Much of it's focused on people's willingness to engage in climate change mitigation behaviors or energy conservation behaviors. And what that literature shows is generally speaking that people, when they're exposed to conspiracy rhetoric, it reduces people's willingness to say that they'll become engaged in these sort of collectively beneficial actions. That's why we included these measures on there to test that. And to tell you the findings, you know, we found strong support for our expectations about exposure to one version or another version of the article, shifting people's attitudes relative to the control group. We found that in competition, as we predicted, there was sort of a canceling out effect. The conspiracy narrative wasn't as powerful when it was pitted against scientific information, although it was still actually pretty powerful. You know, this conspiracy rhetoric did overpower, in some cases, the scientific information. And finally, we also show that people became less willing to, significantly less willing to say they would engage in pro-social health behaviors to mitigate the virus's spread when they were exposed to this conspiracy narrative about its origins in isolation or in the competitive framing condition, people in both of those conditions relative to the baseline were significantly less likely to take those actions. To kind of sum it up, I guess I would say, you know, it's interesting and powerful demonstration of how media coverage and framing effects can shape people's attitudes about scientific information that can have real consequences on their beliefs and on their willingness and intentions to engage in positive pro-social health behaviors. And think about that. This is a one-shot narrative reading one single article. And granted, we have to be sensitive and think about the timing of this study and when it was conducted. And yes, you know, that may have changed if, you know, if we conducted this study later in the year, et cetera. And that's why replications and extensions are important. But at the time we conducted this study, what we show is even a one-shot narrative was quite powerful. So imagine what the real world effects of these things can be when people are repeatedly exposed to such narratives over time in isolation and competition in inter personal discussion. Thank you so much for the in-depth overview. Not only did it highlight the importance of your work, but for listeners without much exposure to the fields of public health and political communication, I think this synthesis was really digestible. And for those interested in reading your work in full, the link to Framing the Origins of COVID-19 will be included in the podcast description. So it's important to understand why media consumption and framing of the pandemic is relevant to pandemic mitigation at large. And I want to narrow our scope on this topic just a little bit. You discussed the interplay between exposure to different articles and how that influences people's beliefs on the origin of the COVID-19 virus. Considering that the articles in the study were formatted to mimic real-life news stories about the origins of COVID, can we blame COVID-19 misinformation on the accessibility of non-scientific news propagated through social media? Or maybe the issue lies in confusing scientific messaging that the public has received from the U.S. government and other health organizations? 
I guess my question really is, how do you think the American media environment contributes to the spread of misinformation? Especially thinking about how conspiracy rhetoric can skew how the public digests or even accepts scientific information at all. I think this is a really fantastic question. You know, we certainly live in a time when there's been a transformation of the information environment through the rise of digital media, both in how media is produced, who can produce it, how people consume it. Even in my own lifetime, it's just an incredible change. And so, you know, my short answer to your question would be, yes, absolutely, there has been an effect in terms of how easy misinformation can be spread in the digital age. Misinformation comes in a variety of forms, but scientific misinformation presents distinct challenges and threats because it constrains policy making. It can lead to dangerous personal health decisions. But the bottom line is it is more easily created. It is more easily transmitted in the digital age. And because of its widespread dissemination often can lead to widespread public misperceptions. And this can be particularly threatening, especially when we're dealing on issues that have serious public health challenges. And so I think there are unique challenges in this information environment and in this digital age and how people consume media. People generally tend to consume information that upholds their existing beliefs, their existing identities, their existing worldviews. And so we know about the selective acquisition and the selective consumption of information and how that can reinforce and strengthen people's attitudes. It can create and enhance political polarization. And those things aren't unique necessarily to social media, digital media per se. There are some things that are unique, though. One, how accessible so much of this information is for re attitude reinforcement, motivated reasoning. Um, but there's also these social feedback incentives for sharing morally charged content, especially content that denigrates political outgroups, whether or not people actually believe the information, this information is true or not, they share it anyway. It's not because they can't necessarily recognize it. Now, that's not the only explanation. There are a lot of other studies that show cognitive abilities and age and other factors can increase people's susceptibility to the effects of political misinformation. But I guess in, in, in the other big threat to me, and it's of how easy it is that science itself can be politicized in this environment. Anyone can claim to be an expert. Anyone can question scientific consensus by accentuating inherent uncertainty of any scientific conclusion or body of evidence, casting doubt on consensus to advance particular policy agendas. And so I think the ability for people to claim scientific expertise uh, and ability to find these echo chambers combined with individuals built in predispositions and tendencies and motivations to trust and seek out attitude reinforcing information is certainly troubling. Finally, there are some things that are unique to this digital media age, such as bots and trolls, their entire existence is to spread misinformation and discord. There are folks who are looking at sort of technological strategies to combat the spread of this as well. I think I would sum that all up by saying, you know, there certainly is an effect and it's important for us to increasingly study and understand ways to counteract and combat those threats. Okay, thanks for that. It's interesting to think about the different variables that play into the propagation of misinformation. I definitely want to continue building the conversation along the theme of political polarization and the consumption of accurate scientific material. As you discussed in the beginning of the podcast, the methodology section of your article indicates that 1,074 respondents were randomly surveyed over a five-day period. 33% identified as Republicans, 40% as Democrats, and 27% as Independents. 
Again, to reiterate, this is a convenient sample and isn't representative of the entire United States. So clearly partisanship can play into the spread of misinformation, but I'm also curious about how political partisanship influences how people receive information. Science should be neutral. Are we consuming pandemic information through partisan filters? And if so, how might this contribute to the spread and acceptance of conspiracy rhetoric? So that's a fantastic question. And, you know, a lot of my interest in political psychology, political communication is focused really around the role that partisan identity and partisan motivated reasoning can play in how people respond to messages and and how they form opinions in different environments. What I would say, generally speaking, is that partisanship plays a tremendously important role as sort of a filter through which people process information and how they how credible they perceive it. Um, Sometimes their motivation is to protect a partisan identity, you know, to be motivated to process information in a defensive way, counter-argue against information that's incongruent with their identities. But other times people can follow partisan cues or follow partisan sources, not in this protective reasoning way, but just simply because that's who they trust, that's who they find credible. There are these mechanisms, broadly speaking, but To be clear, when we get into scientific misinformation and perceptions of scientific credibility, I really think some of Dan Cahan's work at Yale is really interesting. Uh, He's done a ton of work showing that the perceptions about whether or not any scientist is credible on a particular issue, especially those that have been politicized, whether you're presenting people with information about experts on gun control or whether it's about climate change. In the experimental settings, he's shown that ratings of the credibility of scientists often depend on the degree to which the information that they is congruent with, with a respondent's existing identities and worldviews. Broad answer to that question is partisanship plays a tremendous role in how people process information, how they form opinions, especially on scientific issues that have become politicized, where people are more likely to have these you know, identity protective motivations when they're encountering any kind of factual information. Applied to our study, we recruited a nice, diverse, convenient sample, and it's nice that we had a good breakdown of partisanship because, again, the purpose of the study was an experiment, not a survey per se to describe, you know, representative groups of people's opinions. It was to test hypotheses about conspiracy rhetoric, a conspiracy effect, and how these messages sort of have a causal effect on people's attitudes. We certainly observed differences between Democrats, Republicans, and independents on their perceptions about the origins of the virus, the degree to which they would want to punish um, China, uh, their support for biomedical research, to a lesser extent, general willingness to engage in pro-social behaviors. So that gives us an idea, just looking at our control groups, sort of observing these differences in our convenience sample, admittedly, still tells us something about likely differences, even in May that probably existed in a representative sample of of artisans if we had collected a representative sample. What we did not find was any interaction effect, if you will. What I mean by an interaction effect is we didn't find that the effects of our messages across each of our treatments was conditional upon partisanship. It didn't depend upon, it wasn't driven by responses among Democrats, independents, or Republicans. It was driven among similar responses by each of those subgroups within our treatment conditions. And so at least in this study, we did not find that these basic articles just sort of making an argument about the origins of this virus didn't necessarily affect partisans differently at that particular time. Um, So I hope that that makes sense in terms of how, generally speaking, yes, 
partisanship plays a huge role oftentimes in determining people's attitudes. But in this particular study, we didn't find that and it wasn't necessarily the focus of our study. To close the episode, I want to backtrack to what we discussed at the beginning by focusing more on the conspiracy effect and how it influences individuals and their decision making. We discuss in more detail what the conspiracy theory effect is and how it impacts people's use of misinformation and decision making. You know, for example, how does exposure to a non-scientific theory about the origin of COVID-19 propagate the conspiracy effect? such as people using misinformation to make decisions like not wearing a mask or spreading xenophobic messaging or maybe even rejecting social distancing practices? Well, you know, this is an interesting, it's a great question. We didn't hypothesize the conspiracy effect per se in the study. It was an interesting finding. I didn't know if we would find it for sure because it's only been demonstrated in a couple of places. And with climate change, the process sort of makes more sense with this conspiracy effect. Oh, it doesn't exist. Well. Why in the world would it make sense to take pro-social behaviors to mitigate or eliminate a problem that isn't real? When I think about the process driving a conspiracy effect in that on that particular issue, well, I can sort of imagine, well, okay, I can sort of see how we get from, from X to Y. There's no sort of incentive for me. It would be irrational if something doesn't exist to take action to treat it. I do think there's a distinction with the study that we did. I think that as I thought, as, and, and that's why it was a research question, is this effect kind of exists in, in, when we're dealing with, with pro-social behaviors to mitigate the spread of COVID? Because regardless of how this virus originated, I still benefit personally from taking some of these pro-social health behaviors in a way that I don't think is quite as analogous to climate change. To get you from the process of how does conspiracy rhetoric about the origins depress people's willingness to wear masks and social distance. I don't think it's as clear to me as it is with climate, with, with this conspiracy affecting climate change. I do think there's this general notion that when people are exposed to this information, whatever the domain it is, it has sort of a depressive effect on general willingness to engage in any kinds of pro-social actions that'll provide some collective good. But that's conjecture, just to be to be very clear to listeners, not anything we demonstrate convincingly within our study. You know, our study also wasn't really designed to identify ways to combat misinformation, per se. It was really focused on what are the effects of these. There's all kinds of important research geared toward how do we combat scientific misinformation, conspiracy rhetoric. And so we mentioned a little bit of it in the conclusion. We certainly don't expound upon it. It's not the focus of our study, but if you have an extra five minutes, kind of continue. I'm not sure if you have time. Well, super. Well, so as we think about this, we talk about, well, there's this pressing need to figure out ways. How can we combat this information? How can we reestablish trust in science? You know, there's researchers across disciplines working pursuing several avenues. One, I'm going to just mention three briefly, and there are more. This is not an exhaustive list. But first, some studies have begun to examine and explore how trying to inoculate people against misinformation, if you will. They use medical analogy here, but they they want to inoculate individuals against misinformation or expose them to information that pre-bunks before they've even been exposed to this. What, what I wanted to, for your listeners to make this real, I, I, I talked to my son about this. This didn't make sense. I said, I was watching up here up in North Georgia, and I was watching some commercials, and I saw some of the Raphael Warnock commercials with puppies right after the election, and 
maybe some of your listeners saw the puppies, but hey, the point of the commercial was, hey, everyone, uh, you're going to be exposed to a lot of things about me. I, you know, I'm introducing myself and you're going to hear a lot of bad things, but um, you know, don't believe all those things you're going to hear. And I like puppies and, and those kind of things. And so in, in many sense, it was a in my sense, attempt to inoculate or pre-bunk or go ahead and jump right out after the election and and apply these theories from communication to understanding, you know, actual, you know, I don't know whether it, we don't know whether that this is an effect that we can't test it in the in the field here, but that's an example of one way people are testing how can we combat misinformation on emerging scientific issues where people haven't already formed strong, crystallized opinions. And, and in these cases, when we know there, when we can anticipate, oh, there's going to be a lot of misinformation about this, inoculations or warnings, communication strategies that that preemptively try to debunk this information may be one promising way. But it's difficult in practice to anticipate all the different kinds of misinformation that exist, right? And so other efforts have kind of, there's a lot of work for several years that's gone into looking at, can we correct misinformation? What happens? Can we give people, can we educate people? Can we provide them with facts? Can we debunk this information by, by, by countering it after the fact? And, and, and the bottom line to sum a lot of that up is that sometimes if this, these corrections can be effective, Often they're not completely effective. Misinformation can be very sticky. And so oftentimes, you know, a correction is not enough. So they test repeated corrections, et cetera. It's not a panacea. It is a strategy that science communication scholars are pursuing and continuing to identify conditions under which these corrections or information that, that debunks conspiracy rhetoric misinformation can be most persuasive. And then finally, I think a critical factor to understand is oftentimes how we can shift people's motivations when they encounter scientific information, especially on issues that have been politicized, that are entrenched, you know, with partisan polarization and things like that. How can we get people to shift motivations? There's not an easy answer to this question. How can we shift people's motivations from identity or belief protective motivations toward accuracy motivations whereby they seek to process information with a primary goal of evaluating it in an even-handed fashion to uh, arrive at whatever the truth is on any particular issue. You know, and people can be motivated to do this. It's not unrealistic. I mean, they often are, especially when we see people who are likely to be directly impacted by something, their personal health, their personal well-being. In those cases, people often uh, are motivated to use information and process that information to arrive at the best conclusion, whatever that might be for them in these situations. So the bottom line, what I would finish with is we still trust scientists generally on most issues. You know, when we're sick, we go to the doctor, um, we get expert opinions, we might even get a second opinion to make sure that that's right. You know, we want this to reduce uncertainty. The challenge is how can we overcome science's politicization and, and manipulation to address global collective action problems like COVID, like climate change, when they become so infused with partisan meaning and a marker and badge of one's cultural identity that they often just are not influenced by new information uh, and don't trust it. So I think that's, there are a lot of questions about how you know, to get there. But uh, I think those are three avenues, at least to kind of mention and highlight for um, broadly, at least on how people are working to combat scientific misinformation. I loved the Warnock example as a means of inoculating against misinformation. Considering how politically charged COVID-19 has become, these political communication tools seem especially important in building trust in science and overcoming politicization. 
Thank you so much for being on the show today, Dr. Bolson. Framing the origins of COVID-19 suggests that exposure to conspiracy theories can outweigh the influence of scientific messaging in influencing people's beliefs and behaviors. Bolson and his colleagues don't provide recommendations to combat the spread of misinformation, but in the podcast description, I've included a link to the World Health Organization's page on how to report pandemic misinformation online. It's important to stay informed and up-to-date as we respond to the pandemic because science-based messaging encourages the use of protective behaviors to mitigate the spread of disease. We shouldn't treat the pandemic as a partisan issue, so hold yourself and others accountable by gathering information from reliable sources. Thank you for listening, and remember, stay safe, stay sane, and stay well. All the best, Kat.